0: The day we signed with, um, with Columbia Records, I actually went down to Barnes & Nobles and I bought a book about how to play bass because I literally didn't know how to play bass. <laughs> we were a little confused about how we were kind of, people were talking about, this is the new, you know, white stripes and then the next big thing. And in, a, in lots, lots of ways, we felt very inexperienced. So it was a strange um, juxtaposition of feelings.
1: That was Sharon Fu and this is Nordic Portraits. Sharon Fu is a musician and one half of the critically acclaimed and globally revered indie rock, shoegaze, garage, noise, everything, genre shapeshifting band The Ravenettes. In the early 2000s, Sharon and her bandmate Suna conquered the US and beyond, and have been touring and releasing albums regularly ever since, making them one of Denmark's most successful musical exports to date. Sharon, thanks for joining me today.
0: Yes, thanks for having me.
1: I wanted to start by taking you back to 2003, where you and your bandmates are performing on The Late Show with David Letterman. You'd signed a major record deal less than 12 months prior and after a barnstorming performance, Letterman strolls across the stage and turns to you on camera and says, I like that whiplash rock and roll. (laughs) And I'm curious, what did life look like for you at that time?
0: Gosh, um, well, it was obviously incredibly exciting it seemed like the world was our oyster and it was such a wild ride because it's not like things happened overnight for us we had been together for you know making music for a couple of years soon and i when i think we played our first show in 1999 and this is like pre becoming the ravenettes as the duo the two of us we had another friend from Copenhagen that was part of an initial band and so it was kind of like before we became the Ravenettes but so we had worked um sort of very focused and we were very ambitious about wanting to get abroad and try to aim for an international audience and but then suddenly things happened kind of overnight I suppose um 2002 we released our first EP we've on in Denmark through crunchy frog which is a label out of denmark that is still around and we were part part of that scene that was all like friends and bands making music and so we released whip it on and it feels like it was like a roller coaster ride for six months and then suddenly we were signed to columbia records out of the u.s and then we released whip it on in 2003 there we were so then we're promoting the record and playing letterman amongst other things and i I think we were the first danish band to play letterman so yeah i mean i felt like such an achievement and at the same time you know when the day we signed with um with columbia records i actually went down to barnes and nobles and i bought a book about how to play bass because i literally (laughs) didn't know how to play bass (laughs) so there was a real kind of we were a little confused about how we were kind of people were talking about. This is the new, you know, white stripes and the the next big thing. And in a, in lots lots of ways, we felt very inexperienced, and we felt like we were just about to become a band that had a life with our music and our albums and playing in front of an audience and all those things. So, so it was a, a strange um, juxtaposition of feelings, but but super. I mean, obviously, like we were ecstatic. We had a great party after that night, I remember, at a hotel. And suddenly the fire alarm went off and everybody were out on the streets. <laughs> it wasn't because of us, but I just remember I have these like images in my head of like the celebration after that.
1: So it did feel in some ways that you'd really landed.
0: Yes. In some ways it, it did, but it was also like now we need, need to prove ourselves as well, you know, and go out and have that experience in the world as a band.
1: So you talked about wanting to buy a book to teach yourself bass. That that kind of speaks to the fact that the band has had quite a kind of DIY uh, sensibility to it. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, that's also in the whole, you know, punk aesthetics of like, you pick up an instrument and there's a certain innocence and immediacy about it. And, and you know, it's interesting because I actually, I came from, in 1999, I graduated from the conservatory in Copenhagen, but I was studying vocals. Mm. And um, and I was kind of disenchanted with it after like, I took my master's, I had been in the, at the school for five years. And I was missing something that felt more, um, I suppose, that in- initial excitement and innocence, and I picked up the bass. That's how I picked up the bass. I had a band with two friends of mine, amongst others, Christina Rosendale, who's a, an acclaimed film director and another friend of ours who's a teacher and we just all wanted to play something we didn't know how to play you know and the band was called vamp camp but the whole notion was to do something that feels raw and innocent and abrasive and kind of like you know references to the slits and that whole like the beginning of punk and girls playing you know kind of this you know girls and boys you know equally just picking up an instrument and playing music it's all about the energy and the in the sort of the feeling and the, so we had that band and that's how Suna saw me play bass, actually.
1: Wow. And, and how did that fit into the landscape at the time? Was it at home or was it more at odds with the music scene in Copenhagen?
0: So we actually played a show at Little Vega, but we were like the first out of four bands or something. I think there was like some other uh, surf bands at the time. There were a lot of surf bands right around that time. Suna, amongst others, were also playing in the band Tremolo Biergut, which mm. is another band in the Crunchy Frog sort of family. But uh, so we played like I think maybe we only did that one public performance, and then we played at my um, graduation party, and that's when Suna was there because he was like a he was a friend of a friend, and um, he was at the party and he saw me play bass.
1: And how did it then become something more formal from there?
0: Um, I suppose he just. Asked me and said, Hey, do you want to hear some songs? I just wrote and I he was traveling around America trying to like create this new band that he had in mind. Um, you know, he came from the band Psyched of Janice, which he had which was more of a part of the grunge scene. He had come home with a bag of songs, you know. He had been living in Seattle, amongst other places, and in New York and in LA, and he had been trying to put a band together. He knew he wanted to do um he was looking for a boy-girl vocal constellation. He was inspired by the vocal harmonies of the Everly Brothers and, amongst other things, lots of other things as well. But so wanting to share that vocal aspect of a band with someone else, you know. And he had also had ads in newspapers in in New York trying to like find musicians, and in LA, and people would always say, "Well, what you know." What's the fee and how much can you pay? And, I mean, he was broke yet no money. Sure. So he's like, no, no, I mean, I don't have um, – it has to be like a band, you know, where you work things up from from the ground and up. And, I don't know, he just came back to Denmark. And then, and then that's when he suddenly, I suppose, collided with me. And then we started – we just, like, sat down, listened to the song, started playing – it was fairly simple, um, you know. the The early songs were kind of like three chords and same key, and and when we started singing together, it just was like instantly so natural, and like our voices just blended. And so we were both kind of like struck by, "Wow, this is so easy, <laughs> so easy and sort of organic and natural." So then it's just like then we just dived into it.
1: And it felt from the outset that you built a very strong visual identity for the brand, Mm -hmm. uh, for the band. Yeah, Um, (laughs)
0: brand. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Gosh, take my commercial hat off. (laughs) So I was just wondering how that came about. Was it a matter of sharing common references? Uh, Obviously, there's a cinematic tone to the band.
0: Yeah, I mean, in all kinds of ways, we were sort of like exploring um, inspirations and references. We would like also go to the library, for instance, and go through like art books and we would – go to the library and go through, like, name books. We were trying to find a name for the band. And, yeah, this was the day of going to the library. It's, like, very nostalgic, actually. Um, and, and just kind of, like, talk about, you know, our mutual visual references. I mean, the whole idea of Weberdon was sort of this monochromatic experience, also both musically and visually, but then a lot of references to kind of, like, B-movies and film noir But also wanting to have some kind of a modern feeling. So how do you get that up to date? And our music was very inspired by technology and kind of embracing that. So trying to find that place where there's, um, you know, references to something historical or at the same time, a modern feeling. So it was like, and actually, you know, we did those. The second photo shoot we did was to make the picture for the cover for uh, Wiberon, the first album, mini album. And uh, we did that with Seun Solka, mm. and uh, we had shown him these references of like black and white film noir, you know, portraits, and, and like uh, Hollywood actors and actresses, and that whole kind of this beautiful lighting. and And so he had found this old camera. He, I mean, I can't tell you what it was, but it was like to sort of get the texture and the feeling of those old photos. So he literally had this old camera he had borrowed, where he had to like. Develop them right away, put them into this like developing thing, and also we did nine. We did nine uh, shots because it was like very. It's not like a digital camera; we can just like, sh- keep shooting. It was really like lo-fi, old school. So, and we had to stand still for like a really long period of time, and those nine images to this day are just are kind of magical. I think, and that's that they sort of then created all this depth, I think, to the visual experience because they were done in that, in that old, old way, you know.
1: And as for the sound itself, that idea of framing the first two albums or the EP, LP, in the dogma of B-flat minor major, mm-hmm. how did that come about and, and how did that influence you, creatively speaking?
0: Well, I mean, I suppose it was something Suna had already embarked on when he was sort of starting out um, writing for the album. He was kind of putting up these um, yeah, these dogmas that were meant as an inspiration and also meant as a way to kind of like tune in on a sound. You're trying to like f- find your sound basically because it was a new band. You know, he came from Psyched up Janus, which was coming from the whole grunge scene. And then like, he's trying to like create something that sounds different and new and he had these this vision and 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 I think it just it really did become like very inspiring in the creative process and and I think oftentimes it is you know if you if you set some some constraints which are not constraints are really meant to be an inspiration in the creative process of like to write songs in the same key in the same three chords and it was also things like no hi-hat, no right symbol, all the kind of high-end sounds because of sounds had to come from something else. So like real sounds. So it would be chains and bells and banging metal and so trying to like just create a different texture, just to kind of co- like create something that sounds unique. So you're trying to find that, you know, unique differentiator. How did you differentiate yourself and create something that sounds different? Um and then we, the whole point initially was to do the B-flat minor album and then the B-flat major album and then release those as kind of like a full, you know, piece. But then we got signed by Columbia Records after releasing the B-flat minor and then they wanted us to release a full-length album. And then so also then life happens and things kind of take a different turn. But it was still the second album, Changing Love, was then in B-flat major.
1: Right, mm-hmm. yeah. And just on a practical level, what was the experience like being obviously with crunchy frog a local small scale record company Mm -hmm. to then suddenly being presumably chased and hunted by a lot of record labels Uh, can you explain a little bit what that process (sighs) was like
0: yeah i mean it was pretty mad actually um well this is what happened is um we we loved being on crunchy frog it was like a family you know and they still are and um and it was like bands like junior senior and tremlobiacad and um and toth which is like um Yeppo's band that he he's the one who sort of started the label with his with his brother and and his his wife um Yesi Kat. and um so it was like it was like a family and um but then things happened i we didn't really have much time to kind of like just hang out with the family <laughs> Because it was literally like, we. this is what happened. We we went to Spot to play maybe our fifth show all altogether as a band.
1: Spot being a smaller festival in
0: Aarhus. Spot being like an industry festival in Aarhus. And I remember the previous year, um, Mew had just gotten signed to a British label. One of the major labels, I don't remember which one. But for us, it was kind of like, all right, this is like where you can get discovered, you know. Yeah. And we sort of felt like our music would really resonate outside of Denmark somehow because it was... You know, we had actually released Pribudon not to that much critical acclaim in Denmark. It was kinda like I think people were also having a hard time adjusting to the change from Psyched Up Janus because Suna had that legacy in Denmark. So there was a little bit of like, we're not ready for this. <laughs> so we didn't get great reviews here, honestly. And um but we were like, no, no, it's because we need to go to like we need to go to America and we need to go to to. England, and the we need to go to the UK, you know, this is where, where you break into, like, a different sphere, obviously. And then we knew that David Frick was going to be at spot. We were very, like, determined, and as a matter of fact, our agent at the time, he couldn't get us a spot on spot, like, he couldn't get us a slot there, Yeah. so we changed agents, and we literally were, like, saying, asking an agent, if you can get us on spot, we'll We'll, you know, work with you. So we found someone who could get us on that festival. And um, and then um, David Freak was in the audience when we played our fifth show or whatever. And the next day there was like this, he was in this panel, a discussion about, I don't remember what, but, you know, something. And then at some point he said, you know what? I heard this band yesterday, last night, they rocked my world. And they were called The Shades, because at the time we were called The Shades. Okay. <laughs> we had actually changed our name officially to The Ravenettes, but when the program was printed, we were still The Shades. We kind of had different names. The Girl on Death Row at, a, at some period of time. It's like this band, The Shades. And he just kept talking and went on and on about this band that he just thought was like, you know. And he made a lot of references to, like, you know, things that were happening in that whole, you know. The new sort of garage rock punk scene that was happening in New York with the Strokes and obviously the White Stripes from Detroit and the Hives from Sweden and the yeah, yeah Yes and the yeah, yeahs and the, li- the Liars and there was just like a whole like scene happening at the time, you know. And um, mm-hmm. he's like, but they're like, they're so much more melodic and da da da, and they write great songs and. I think then within a few months, uh, we it just kind of like we took that momentum to another level. We played at CBGBs, which was the first place we played outside of Denmark.
1: Wow, that's or, quite, quite a claim to fame.
0: Except, you know, it was kind of a crappy venue at the time. You know, it wasn't really the CBGBs of the 70s anymore. But still for us, it was like it was just part of paying homage to like, you know, our inspirations and it felt exciting for us, you know. But, and also there were maybe 15 or 20 people there, but David Freak was there. And um, why am I spacing on his name from MTV? Like the really kind of high profile MTV person. Carson Daly? No. (laughs) Uh, But the two of them, and David Freak wrote this like, just, you know, radiant, like super excited review on Rollingstone.com. And then the guy that I'm now spacing on, his name, wrote this also, you know, glorious review on um it must have been MTV something. And and then and then suddenly we had like eight I think we had 18 labels kind of chasing us at the time. And then we were just like flown around the world and whined and dined and and then finally we signed with Columbia Records. I think we signed with Columbia Records at the end of that year and in May was the spot. So like maybe like four months or something of kind of craziness.
1: And what do those meetings look like? Is it just seeing if the chemistry is right or trying to find out whether who can give you the best deal or how did you end up landing with Columbia?
0: Well, I mean, initially what happened was things like all right, we'll fly you to New York. We want to see you play, right? So they wanted to see us play, for instance. So the Columbia Records, for for instance, they flew us to New York. They put us up in a fancy hotel with like fabulous dinners. And so they're trying to kind of woo you at the same time as you're trying to woo them. (laughs) So it's like this, you know, courting each other, but you're also kind of checking each other out and going like, is this going to be a good relationship? Can we work out? Like, is there chemistry? And so then they set up this... I suppose we played in some production rehearsal space and they all came down, you know, Donny Einer, the head of Columbia Records, with all his, like, whatever. He always had these guys that looked like they were from the mafia and, like, <laughs> we, we were quite sort of fascinated by that whole, like, that feeling of, like, power. And <laughs> and then we also were talking to with a lot of British labels, amongst others, This I remember this girl from BMG, I remember, and they basically sent her over to just, like, hang out with us. And she flew she flew from New York to LA with us and hung out at the hotel. And was just like, so it just becomes, I don't know how, I don't know that it still works like that, but that's... And we were kind of, I think, one of the last baby bands to really get what they call a major label deal. You know, we signed a contract for $2 million without really having done anything. And we never really became the next big thing, you know, ultimately. But... <laughs> But it was, uh, it was, it's crazy. It was fun. But it also, at a certain point, it's like, well, I mean, it's just like this alternate reality, this like weird suspended space. We just want to like release records and tour and play and like have a conversation with our fans. And, you know, it just felt like um, we also, we just really wanted to make a decision. And ultimately it was like Columbia Records. I our know. I don't know. I so I think they just came on really strong, and and we literally had another label calling our manage, management. Our manager Scott Cohen, who like at the time, like we were just about to sign, they're like, "We don't care. We'll pay more. Don't sign." So it was just this. It's just this frantic thing that happens when they. It's like a whatever crazy feedback loop of like labels. Just like it becomes a competition. I think.
1: So what does it feel like on the day that you sign? to the label did you suddenly feel a sense of responsibility or relief that okay we can actually go out and show what we're made of now
0: well all of those feelings a lot of feelings i mean it was like a big celebration obviously but also like a real sense of like let's do this let's go out and conquer the world you know this real sense of like just yeah let's go out and have and have these experiences now and like I wouldn't, it didn't feel like a heavy burden. It just felt incredibly exciting. I mean, we were signing the contract, sitting in Donnie Aina's office at the, like, whatever, 54th floor in the middle of Manhattan. And, like, we were playing a song for him. It was, like, that great love sound that we had just kind of finished. And Richard Goddard was there, and Scott Cohen was there, our manager. And Richard Goddard, by the way, who's, like, this, you know, legend, um, has... Released albums with um, Richard Hell and the Voidoids and Blondie, and you know, just like has this, and and wrote songs like "I Want Candy" and "My Boyfriend's Back." And so he was there, and he was part of a management group and and our producer as well for the second and third album. And we were playing on this guitar that said, you know, "Love You, Donny," XX Bob Dylan. <gasps> so we were playing on Bob Dylan's acoustic guitar. It just felt like suddenly, you know. I suppose, like, a real sense of, yeah, being like suddenly taking this little project we had into like this other stratosphere, like, you know, being label mates with Bob Dylan. I mean, how crazy is that? So,
1: there was a lot written about, and mostly in hindsight, about that New York scene in the early zeros, the strokes, yeah. Interpol, yeah, yeah, yeahs. Mm-hmm pre-social media. So a lot of those stories didn't come out. You know, there wasn't the fear of people chasing you around with a mobile phone, but it seemed like a pretty crazy time to be in indie rock. How was it for you being thrust into that?
0: Um, I remember we met, for instance, The Kills in in London and we played a few shows with them and became really good friends with them. It felt super exciting to be a part of a a scene i think in terms of us the ravenettes we've talked about it also in hindsight that we were actually not that great at sort of like being part of the the sort of community and the scene because we weren't li- we weren't in new york and we weren't also weren't in london and although later on we moved to london we moved to new york and we just started out touring intensely like we toured intensely And we we were also a strange band in the sense that we were never really completely part of one scene or the other. I mean, even in the introduction, you also said this, like, shape-shifting band, right? I mean, in a a way, we were too pop to be part of real punk, and we were too kind of noisy to to be part. I mean, we were just kind of like, we weren't really garage because we were, like, embracing technology and playing with a lot of tracks and samples. And so we were like this weird in-between, we were a band that were kind of in our own stronger a little bit although we had a lot of um similarities and lots of similar inspirations to a lot of those bands and but i do think we have talked about it you know how how actually we weren't we were kind of a little bit like floating in space compared to some of the other sort of scenes so we never felt embedded in the scene as such maybe had we just had we been in copenhagen we might have felt more embedded in the scene but we also left copenhagen you know and And also, like for instance, we were also very embraced by the kind of psychedelic rock scene, which was like the Brian Jonestown Massacre, the Warlocks, um, BRMC, which kind of comes from that scene as well, which was much more of like the West Coast, of you know, the U.S. West Coast scene. And so we were kind of like both had sort of, we were invested in that. We were invested in the New York scene. I mean, we opened for the Strokes on a big tour in the U.S. and... And so there, so it's like, and we, the first tour we did in in America was opening for Interpol and they, they, you know, were big fans of our first album. And so there's like, and actually I remember the Warlocks, they did half that tour and we did the other half tour, you know, so it's like, so there is of course this scene of bands that are like, you know, appreciating each other and supporting each other. And, and, and then, and we have had, you know. A lot of It was a lot of fun nights and parties. And obviously, you know, the tour with Interpol, for instance, like incredibly decadent and kind of wild. And it was just like thrust into this rock and roll extravaganza, I would say.
1: Does it get dark?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it does. I mean, and in a lot of ways, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's like what they say that youth is wasted on the on the young right you know in a sense it's like you know we were 26 27 at the time uh which we weren't like super young but we weren't we also we were still in our 20s and and um and it was like this we were on this high of like you know this is it we're in it it's happening like this it was super rock and roll you know suddenly being able to travel the world and play music and have like big sold-out crowds and like this it was it was very celebratory at first and then I would say it became darker later on when it was more of like it became more of like trying to then survive it somehow the then what happens which becomes like the monotony of like touring for instance and being able to go on stage every night for like you know nine ten days in a row and you're touring constantly I mean a U.S. tour would be seven weeks or something and straight on to a British tour that's like three weeks. And it was just going from tour to tour, basically. I think we toured America those first years like three times or something every year. And we played maybe like 250 shows a year. And at a certain point, it's like, okay, I'm feeling a little frazzled. And um, at that point, it's not celebration anymore. It's not like, let's...
1: It's almost more self-medication.
0: Things like that, yeah. And also just being able to like go on stage and... And perform what we felt like we should perform, which was like this like sense of, you know, intensity and punk rock and, you know, this high energy. And in a way, it's like it definitely became much more. How do you create a high energy show when you're coming from a kind of a low energy place? And, Mm. you know, and obviously it wasn't like a super healthy lifestyle. And so it's just like, um, you know, managing that became a little darker. But that was a little bit later on. I would say at first it was really kind of fun. It's pretty fun.
1: It's pretty wild. Do you think as well that, I mean, obviously you reference or have referenced in interviews the inspiration from the likes of the Velvet Underground, for example. Mm -hmm. So you suddenly are stepping up in some ways into their shoes, you know, into the more popular scene. And they obviously have a history with drugs and, you know, a notoriety and so forth. I mean, do you feel in some ways that, that that's just part and parcel with retracing their footsteps or did it feel like it was helping the creative process or (laughs) Um, because there's a romanticism
0: involved. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it is part of a lot of people's experience with when you are working within creation and creativity and I think you are all the time kind of exploring boundaries in a lot of ways. So it's like, and sometimes, like, for instance, when you're dealing with, you know, being in a in a music scene in that community, I mean, it just... Unless you're in a scene that specifically takes um, a stand and makes a stand to kind of like, you know, if you're... I mean, I think oftentimes there's a reaction to it and it'll be like a no-drugs reaction, for instance, or... I mean, if you look at a scene like the punk scene in the 70s, you know, in a way it was like the way women were part of that scene and being very sexualized initially. It, then there's like the no-wave scene that kind of like takes a lot of, um, they they want to distance themselves from that and, bec- and have much more of a kind of empowered place, uh, coming from a much more empowered place. And I just think it kind of, it becomes reactions to whatever is, is happening at the time. I think, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm just kind of oh, like... Thinking about what, I mean, yes, there's definitely, I do think there was definitely initially like this romantic notion of like, yeah, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, and which is, and at a certain point it becomes a little bit like maybe cliche. And then you're like, well, it doesn't, I mean, what is, doesn't have to be sex, drugs, rock and roll. What is really radical, it's also very radical to take good care of yourself. And so it just, you just go through different phases, I suppose, also in the creative process and your age and all kinds of things. Initially, there was a sense of, let's go off the deep end and explore, like, where we can go with this. I mean, in that scene. And I remember, like, one place we all spend a lot of time in New York was a place called The Dark Room. Well, there. Apt. (laughs) Yep. Um and literally it was the dark room, but then it wasn't just the dark room it was like the basement of the dark room, you know, and it just kind of says a lot about what was going on in the, on the lower east side in like two thousand two and two thousand three and two thousand four, which was this whole scene you know and um it was there was a lot of nights spent there um it was dark, but it was also experimenting and exploring like um, yeah, what what does that mean? Like darkness and like being kind of very testing some boundaries and what that means and how that can that inspire your. I mean, it, I suppose part of it is also just like getting inspired and finding inspiration and in stories and from you know the nocturnal, you know the nocturnal experience and and then and then your focus changes, you know, throughout your life.
1: So, there wasn't, it wasn't like there was a specific experience where things got so wild that you're like, okay, I need to pull it back here. Uh,
0: Not for me personally. I think maybe if you talk to Suna, um, Mm. I. I mean, there were some things that happened at the time. Like a very specific thing that happened was I remember, Suna had this notion about like it was so rock and roll to like trash a backstage room, and I don't, I don't know. I'm also, I am ultimately like a well-behaved girl, <laughs> and I'm also so, I'm always very concerned with other people's well-being. It's like just part of like my natural like nature, my nature, I suppose. You know, and I just felt so bad for those people that I had to like clean it up. Also, I was concerned about our reputation. I'm like, they're not going to want to have us back. So let's just like think about our career, you know, as a long term career. So, with our manager and, and I, we had soon signed this contract that he wouldn't trash any more backstage rooms. <laughs> Cause I was like, this is ridiculous. This <laughs> is just like some ridiculous notion of what's rock and roll. I actually think it's much more like radical and rock and roll to be, you know, A kind person, you know, and and it it really is at a certain point because you think that that's what's rock and roll. But ultimately, if you are in it for the long haul and you want to be sustainable, you have to treat people nice, and you have to have good conversation with the people that are ultimately providing for your career as well, which is the venues, the promoters, the festivals, the people that are part of that scene. You know, they're ultimately not going to want to deal with you, especially if you're, if you never make it. I mean, obviously, if you're a superstar, there's like no limits to what you can do and your behavior, but that's not what we were. So, I mean, ultimately, you have to also function. So that was one thing that happened. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure I have lots of other examples. Oh, yeah, there was one night. The last night of the Strokes tour that we did in America, um, we were we wanted to celebrate. We were having fun. Like we ended up like hanging out at the Strokes hotel. They were always staying at these fabulous hotels, right? And we were staying in the cheap hotels in town. <laughs> and then we would, we would have to after parties at their hotels, and we were in uh, one of the guys. I think it was Albert's room, and we just, like, took all the booze from his mini bar and we poured it into, like, the thing that you're supposed to put, like, ice in, the ice bucket, and we just put all the, everything that was in there, everything, and just made this, like, cocktail, and then we all just drank from it, like, it was like this, <laughs> you know, we were drinking to this tour and, like, celebrating and, like, and, um, And we just got so drunk. And then there was like, um, it was lobby call, right? Or bus call, they call it. Bus call. We were supposed to like leave and basically drive for like 10, 11 hours to this next town where we were then starting our own um, headline tour. But this like first place we were playing was, it was kind of far, but you know, we were on tour. We weren't paying attention. Like what? 10 10 hours? We didn't know. We were supposed to be at like this bus call at 3 a.m. or something, right? And, um, and we missed bus call. we didn't show up for bus call, and it was me and Sunan and our drummer Jakob right and um and hanging out with those guys i by the way, I have some great um Polaroid photos from that night <laughs> <laughs> um and then ultimately, you know he the our tour manager called us, and we of course just like ignored the, we didn't you know we just weren't paying attention. we weren't trying to be like good citizens or a good like band of people at that time. we were just having fun. And ultimately what happened was that the tour manager was just like, you know what? We're just going to leave them. Which I don't know how he thought that that was a good idea. He basically left the band. Like he's also, by the way, he's, I mean, we we're basically the ones that gave him a job, right? So.
1: Yeah. It's a conflicted uh, <laughs> position to be in. So
0: he he left and we woke up. We like just like spend the night in Albert's room, like sleeping on couches and whatever, all of us. And, um, we wake up the next day and we're like, all right, well, I suppose, you know, and then suddenly like reality kind of hits and you're like, I guess we have a tour that starts today and like kind of far away and we were trying to figure out, like, flights and trains and boats and, you know, <laughs> whatever. There was just, like, no way of getting there. And ultimately, like, we found this, like, fan from the night before that would drive us there in his car. It turned out his car had no seats in the back. So we were, like, <laughs> sitting on this in this car with, like, no seats on the floor. And it smelled so bad, like alcohol in that car. And we were just so hungover and... We actually made it to the show, but we made it kind of late. This is not something I'm proud of, by the way. This is like one of those stories where I'm like, it's, it seems so ridiculous now. But we had to ask the they they actually ended up asking the opening band to play two shows, so two sets. <laughs> they played the same set twice, and then we like came running in. Which, by the way, was a band called a band called the Rogers Sisters, which I still to this day think is like a really great band.
1: So you mentioned that things then get a little bit dark, and obviously you you have to just negotiate this very surreal lifestyle of touring nonstop. Mm -hmm. When you get to that point where it sounds like you were able to more or less make it a healthy way of touring, do you remember what that transition was like? I mean, was it because, okay, guys, we need a timeout, we need to rethink how we're going to keep this sustainable, or how did that come about?
0: I definitely think that it was like a slow progression of like having some experiences that Things happen. Like we we started out, we ended up having suddenly some really serious financial problems, which seemed so crazy to us because we had signed a contract for $2 million. Like, wait, that makes no sense. Not like we had bought a house or anything. Um, So I think it was more of like having some rough experiences and then kind of taking more and more control and really not counting on anyone else sort of taking care of our career. So I think it was a lot of that. And then it's really the realization that you can't keep on, like, um, I mean, actually, when we started out recording "Lost Us Lost," which then became our first album we released independently.
1: 2007.
0: Correct. And, and that was a tough album to make. And I, I think the realization that you can't tour relentlessly, at, at least not for us, some people can't. It's like basically getting to know yourself and how you are thriving and how you are functioning well. And how you are not functioning well. So for us, it was really like a learning process. And, and like the conceiving that record was so hard for us because we were basically burnt out and had no inspiration. And so I think we recorded like maybe two albums worth of material that was just kind of like thrown out, you know, and we, we just dumped it because it just wasn't right and it wasn't good enough or, or whatever. It just wasn't right. And then it was actually that we packed a van with equipment and drove from New York. We were living in New York at the time, drove over to Walla Walla, Washington, which is like on the West Coast. And we were um, putting all our equipment up in this winery to try and like see if something happened there and like being in nature and I was like, yeah, this is not working out for us. <laughs> so just like looking for inspiration, right? Mm. You're trying to like kickstart that whatever it is, that inspiration that starts something and finding that centerpiece of like, where, where are we supposed to go now? Like we just feel a little lost. So then we drove all the way back to New York and eventually it was much more of an urban environment that's ended up being inspiring. And then you're so just like searching for what is this? But it took a while. That was like which is not typical for the Ravenets. We're kind of like a band that will turn out records. I mean, we've released a lot of records, uh, maybe 10 or 11 records in the So it was unusual for us that it was so difficult and Suna as a songwriter that's very prolific, but that was a tough time. But how do you reflect on that album now? To me, it's like a very it's my one of my favorite records of the Raven. It's that one and Whip It On and Changing of Love might be some of my favorite records of ours. I think they're very strong, cohesive pieces. I mean, I love parts of all of our albums, of course, but I don't know, something for, to me stands out on those three albums as like kind of anchors.
1: I'm fascinated by this... Um kind of forced, arranged marriage of you and Suna as the two kind of, you know, the core of the band, Uh the band. And I'm just curious, has there been disunity in the past? Is there a lot of fighting along the way? Or have you always more or less seen eye to eye creatively? And I mean, you're obviously spending so much time together on the road and in the studio.
0: Yeah. I would say that surprisingly, we are still really pretty good friends and I sort of, consider him family uh, and I still think he's very funny and sort of a genius in his own way his own dysfunctional way <laughs> um, no I love Sune. and and I think that's and but yeah we've had we've had like periods of time during our career where we really didn't see eye to eye. I almost wish we had fought more I always almost wish we had been a little bit more confrontational with each other. I think we've had a tendency of, like, we're kind of, like, maybe both a little bit having problems with confrontation and being, um, what do you call it when you're... Um Passive-aggressive? Well, there's that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it also, it just is such an extreme situation to be in, to be, you're not supposed to spend time with people like that. The way that you spend time in bands, which is why, why historically there's so so much... Um, like extreme feuds within bands and bands that you see really can't, you know, basically be in the same room. They're still touring, but they can't have a conversation or they leave the stage and go out out into, like, separate cars and drive away. They just don't, they can't stand each other's company. But it really is kind of an extreme way to be together. It's like you wouldn't want to have a marriage that was like that. It's just too much. Because ultimately, you know, if you're on a tour bus and you have a day room and everybody has to shower in the same room and you're sleeping in the same like little close you know contained space of a bus and you're having to go on stage every night and and ultimately there's also a little bit of that feeling of like imposter syndrome that everybody feels which is like what you're just like going on stage and doing the same thing again and and like you, would, which is totally fine to me. I actually am fine with that. But like there's like those experiences where each other, where you see kind of the words, sights and parts of each other and being in interviews, you're sitting, sooner and I sitting next to each other and I'm like, what? What are you saying? It makes no sense. It's like a ridiculous thing to say. And he'll feel the same way about me because you just, you're constantly like experiencing each other in this meta state, you know? And that's it's somehow like, It wasn't always a healthy experience, especially if we weren't, like, in a good place individually or together. I mean, there were periods of time when we couldn't, we literally wouldn't look each other in the eyes when we were playing concerts. Those were the bad periods, when you sort of, like, can't, sort of can't deal with the other person. And there's no, like... Because, I mean, you want to have that communication, right, when you're on stage to be able to sort of support each other and have some kind of <laughs> communication going. But, yeah, there were times when we just would just, I, I can't look at you, you know, <laughs>
1: thing. Do you think you've established coping mechanisms now, or, you know, now that you're… A- so much more mature both of you
0: yeah for sure yeah but we also know like what's not good for us like we, we also came to a point in our career where we we're like we just are not we don't function well like touring constantly it's just not for us and then if that's like gets in the way of our career we just you have to fi- figure out a way to balance your life so that you have you find your way of doing it obviously um it just was like, yeah, we we can't do seven weeks touring. It just doesn't. Suna can't sleep on a bus, and if he doesn't, sleep, if you don't sleep, then this is this is our toolbox, and we just have to figure out how we function well. And we we figured out that we're much better at doing like shorter tours or like go. We ended up also just doing much more of like East Coast, West Coast, and not like go all through America. Like um, also, you know, I became a mother in two thousand and eight, which was right after. Uh, last, us last was released and so that also changed things and changed changed things also in, in a way that Suna was happy about because he's not someone who loves touring at all. I suppose we've always enjoyed the actual like the creative process of making the record and being in the studio and recording and like that kind of like the initial creative part of it is probably where we both I think feel more. Like, that's the inspiring part of it. I mean, not that I, I love playing shows as well, but it's like the lifestyle surrounding it can be kind of tough. Mm.
1: And music aside, how has motherhood been as an experience and, and how has it changed
0: you? Um, yeah, you know, I was thinking about it the other day. The beginning, the early stages of motherhood where, you know, for instance, we started touring again when my daughter was three months old. And I remember feeling I'm definitely very confused about like my identity at the time as like being a mother and then the the rock like Ravenettes and it wasn't like completely embraced by by the band I would say I wish that maybe it had been embraced a little bit more but I think for Suna at the time it was kind of hard to sort of wrap his head around this notion that there was like this whole notion of motherhood and and so he would say things like, don't talk about, <laughs> don't talk about, you know, that whole experience when we we're doing interviews. And like, why not? This is like my experience. It's super interesting. Come on, that's actually interesting to me. It's like, how, how do you do that? How do you play in a rock band and tour and have a child? And like, how do you make it all like sort of, to me, that was, I thought it was fascinating. But, um, but yeah, it was a little confusing at first, but I was, I mean, to me, it was like, I, one of the most profound experiences in my life is becoming a parent and I wish I'd had more people to share that experience with I suppose like I didn't have a lot of I actually had no sort of female colleagues that I could really bounce off of and have those conversations about like a shared experience or like yeah I wish I'd had more people around me that had that experience as well I didn't I sort of had to figure it all out by myself and
1: do you put a lot of that down to the fact that you were in L.A.?
0: Mm, I haven't thought about that, but I suppose it would, it would, I wouldn't have had anyone to, you know, there wouldn't have been anyone in Denmark having that experience. No one was touring internationally like that with a child. I mean, they, they would be touring on the weekends here in Denmark, but not like, I mean, I was touring so much, like nonstop, right? So... I mean, I've, I've always looked, looked at a band like Sonic Youth. They always brought out Coco, which is Thurston and Kim's daughter, out mm. on tour, but they were also a couple in a band, you know? So it's like that's a different way of embracing that experience. So I did feel a little bit alienated, I would say, from the band at the time. And soon, and I are the band, but at the time, I think we had two or three people playing with us. So there's there was definitely like the gang, and then I was a little bit more um, having a little bit more of an outside experience throughout those first initial years. When Molly was two, I stopped bringing her out on tour with me that much. Then, of course, it was a different experience of like, but then still a little compartmentalized. It was a little strange. I did feel a little bit of like, you know, I'm out on tour, am I am like whatever in quote a rock star or whatever you know in this rock star world and then uh coming home and being like a suburban housewife ultimately you know in LA (laughs) so it was a little compartmentalized I was having some like issues definitely trying to balance it all
1: has it changed you creatively speaking
0: yeah I would say so I mean it's hard to know how Things would have been different if it weren't the way that things are, which is, um, I think it's a common experience for a lot of parents. It's like you become very focused about your time and you become very efficient and you become very kind of like, which is actually I thought was good for the creative process. It's actually being very sort of determined and focused with your time and also being uh, very appreciative of that time you then have to be creative and like make it count Mm -hmm. so rather than like having 24 hours at your disposal it's like this is what you have and then which is also the challenge then because sometimes it can be difficult to do that deep work because you're like constantly being pulled out of it yeah and also what it does to you existentially of course you know to to have the responsibility for another human being and like i think that always will force you to kind of deal with some of your own stuff so that you can get that out of the way and you don't have to like pass that on to your children. I think that's like – so in that sense, it's a good – you're kind of forced to do a lot of deep work Mm. ultimately. So in that sense, yeah.
1: Have you um, taken time to kind of reflect on your own childhood as a result
0: of becoming a mother? Yeah. um, Yeah, for sure, very much in lots of different ways – I've had a lot more respect for my own parents <laughs> and feeling very a lot of generosity toward towards them and understanding and but obviously um I've thought about it a lot also culturally because i my daughter is born in America and she's she has dual citizenship, so she's yeah. Danish and american but she's she's growing up in america she's eleven now and like that kind of experience became very. Like once you have a child and you're experiencing your child growing up in a different culture, which you know you become more and more aware of how different it actually is from me coming from Denmark, and kind of what that meant, so I've kind of been forced to think a lot about that and kind of try and i think there's a tendency to be like what i what I knew was much better, but like really kind of like question that and and like be inquisitive towards yourself in terms of like is it just because that's what you know and so I've had to really think a lot about what, you know, values and what feels meaningful to me and the different sort of ways that life is in Denmark and in America.
1: Because you also grew up, am I right in understanding you grew up in more of a community setting <laughs> in the in, uh, middle middle of Jutland?
0: True. I, I did grow up in, um, yeah, it was like, you know, it was actually sort of a community of people coming from Copenhagen and the suburbs of Copenhagen move into Jutland to be closer to nature. Hmm. And so, yeah, I grew up in kind of like a little bit of an isolated community of people that weren't originally from the countryside, but kind of went to sort of have that experience. So I suppose it's like, you know, hippies and it was that time in the 70s and they were um, they also started their own school. So I went to a school that was all my friends. We were like eighteen students the first day of school and so it was it wasn't like a an integrated community. It was very much of its own little I, Copenhagen Island in Jutland. Which is also why I've I've never acquired um an accent like it. people will say, You don't sound like you're from Jutland, but I am. I'm born in Jutland.
1: Wow. And are your parents still there?
0: No, they're here. Okay. Now we moved here uh, to Copenhagen when I was fifteen. Well, not Copenhagen to the the suburbs of Copenhagen. Okay. So
1: did the is the community still there or did it disband at some point?
0: Um, there's still parts of the community there. The school is still there. Now it's like this kind of like elitist to very sort of progressive school in town and. Um, I mean, elitist is kind of like such a bad word, but <laughs> it's definitely changed from being like an outsider school to being very sort of appreciated by the community, the broader community. But my family is more embedded over here now, I would say, which is where they originally came from. Faum, Birgöl,
1: Lovely areas outside of <laughs> Copenhagen. Yep. So you have actually had quite a nomadic existence in some ways when you look across the spectrum of your full life. I mean, can you put your finger on a place that feels truly home to you?
0: Um, I mean, Denmark feels truly home to me and it's, it always, it's something about Denmark really resonates with me. You know, I just moved back to Denmark from living abroad for 17 years. So, which is really a sense of belonging and a sense of like how I just, I mean, I just feel so deeply connected here in all kinds of ways. It's everything from like just the sense of the air and how it feels and how it's so fresh and like the rain and the seasons. There's so many things that just feels like very I just I I, I just love the the feeling of it, you know? Like LA never really completely felt like I just, it was always so hot and dry and I can't breathe in my, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I also love LA. I mean, I, 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 I would say that I've always been kind of a traveler and I've been always very interested in different cultures and different experiences and like diversity. And, um, you know, I'm a quarter Chinese. I've been to China a lot in Asia and I have that, you know. So I've always been curious about the the big perspective in that sense, but... Denmark is, is I feel, I feel very connected here.
1: What have your experiences in China been like?
0: Um, so the first time we went to China was in 1976, which was when I was just three years old. It was like right after the Gang of Four fell. So it was like, um, I obviously don't remember that trip, but so I've been coming there maybe like when I was three, when I was nine, when I was 11, when I was 14, when I was 21 was the last time I was there with my family, with my grandfather, who's Chinese. I mean, it was a really authentic experience. It wasn't an experience of coming home because, to me, it's like very exotic. But it was a lot of things that I that I that felt familiar to me because of my grandfather and the way that he's brought obviously that um, the sense, the feeling of a Chinese experience with him in all kinds of ways. He was he opened the first Chinese restaurant in Copenhagen. I would come there all throughout my childhood. So the, the tastes and the smells and the you know, so there was a lot of things that felt familiar to me. Like even t- we've toured with the Ravenettes in China as well. When I smell like certain smells, I'm like, I'm completely like taken back to like my childhood experience. So there's a lot of things that I recognize. And I loved seeing my grandfather there because he was a different, a little bit of a different person, like a fish in the water. And like he wasn't always feeling completely at home here in Denmark. And he always spoke with a very thick accent and... I really appreciate that he that he did that like he would invite us to China and we would stay in his little village way out in the countryside of, of Hainan the island where he grew up and spent maybe you know 4 weeks 6 weeks so it's like you really get to have like a deep experience with it and and I really appreciate also just having that experience of coming from Denmark, which is such a sheltered, privileged place to come from to sort of experience poverty and on a whole other level and just a, just such a different cultural experience. I think it was, a, it, was a, it was an important perspective for me and it was very educational. Yeah. Mm.
1: You've had other pursuits outside of music, um, such as I know you had a pop-up store in LA yeah. where you were selling goods from Danish <laughs> designers and artists. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was a place called Hurrah, which is, you know, hooray in Danish, Hoorah. Um I suppose I've always been very interested in like, and inspired by, you know, the arts overall and like design and aesthetics and, uh, you know, visual arts and architecture. And I just, I always think it's, it's so much more inspiring if you, be, when you become like, um, when you go across disciplines, you know, the, mm. what do you call that in English?
1: Multidisciplinary. multidisciplinary,
0: you know, and literature and the poets. And um, I think it's just, it's, it just opens up a whole new sort of, um, it can become very, if you're just hanging out with musicians, it's a, bit, a little bit one-dimensional. And I suppose I was also looking for at the time a little bit of a a way to feel more connected with Los Angeles and feel more like, contributing to it somehow or being part of the pulse of the city. I think I was feeling a little alienated. I would always be like touring and then come home and be a little isolated. So I I was like trying to figure out how to get my hands into it, you know, and um and then so that was like my interest and curiosity about like um design and arts and and also also noticing how Interested people in LA, LA were about design and and aesthetics and um, and also just like the way the society works in Denmark, there was a real kind of fascination for all things Danish. Danish was almost like I guess sort of um you know a quality sort of blue stamp or something you know and um, and we just really wanted also to. Me and my friend Camilla that started the project together. Also to showcase some things from Denmark that weren't like the typical things that you would always see. You know, the classic um, Annie Jacobsen chair or whatever. So like kind of go into more of like the cutting edge stuff and like the upcoming things. And so for us, it was like uh, we wanted to sort of bring some, some young artists and designers and things to L.A.
1: Did it make you feel proud of coming from a, a rich scene like Denmark?
0: yeah I mean, I didn't think of it like feeling proud, but it but yes, I definitely felt like a real sort of i th- i thought it was very exciting to kind of curate things and like we had these um we had sort of a gallery space, so we had three exhibitions there, and then we had at the same time kind of like the the um, sort of the design space with lots of things that we were selling and um yeah i and i you know what I felt excited about was like people's experience when they came into the space the pop-up space which was supposed to be there 5 weeks but we ended up being there for 5 months cuz it was going really well and um just like people really said it was a different feeling like we had done a lot about like creating the space making the space feel Scandinavian yeah. Danish like it was very white and open and just the feeling of it was just very like people would say it's, it's just such a it's a particular feeling and sensibility when we walk in here. So it's a whole, like, full experience. So, like, just, like, trying to bring some of our heritage and, like, sensibility to, to Los Angeles, it was fun.
1: And that was a departure from playing in a rock band, and you're also now opening a new chapter by
0: mm-hmm.
1: being an academic, can we say, <laughs> uh, at the conservatorium here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How is that? I know it's early days, but how has that experience been? And how are you feeling about this you know, new chapter in your career?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I just started a position at the Conservatory in Copenhagen as an adjunct in something called artistic development. And so yes, it's a completely new experience. This is my first semester. And so far <laughs> it, it's, I mean, what can I say? It's, it's so many things at the same time. It's like, it's, incredibly challenging, which is great. I've always kind of liked challenging myself. And I also have always liked doing things that I feel incredibly scared and intimidated by. I I really have never thought about teaching, but now being in it and teaching, it's like a very profound experience and privileged actually to hang out with someone that's like these young artists that are just exploring their creativity and how to express themselves or what they want to express and like so I'm, I'm it's pretty wild to embark on something so different and new because I'm a I have no experience teaching um but um it's so it's like an education for me as well but I I feel very lit I feel very inspired my brain is kind of, it's kind of going off
1: and there's a research component as well to your position there mm-hmm. so what you see yourself as diving into deeper
0: um well I was thinking a lot about maybe uh, this is something that I haven't decided on yet but like things that I find interesting right now is like the notion of new technology within like musical experience let's say for, or even music creation so for instance spatial audio experiences which is something I've been exploring with my sister i have a new musical project with my sister
1: your sister is also an established artist is that yeah. correct Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: and our project is called sister i don't know if it's going to be sister in danish or sister in english but we did a little mini residency in new york with these two guys dave and gabe that do all they have like this spatial audio setup which is basically like 40 something speakers that are um spaced out in a in a space, in a room. So it's like this whole notion of, you know, the architectural spatial experience of sound, which I think is like super fascinating. So that's something I would be interested in diving into in terms of some artistic research. You know, I've been also curious to do much more of like collaborations with the different artistic educations in Copenhagen. Let's say, for instance, like the Art Academy, the Architect School, the... I don't know what's called in, what it's called in English, but basically the theater school. So like that would be like all the actors and the, the classical conservatory. Like just like the notion of um, of doing more, more, much more of like sort of interdisciplinary work, which mm-hmm. I think that could be an interesting study as well. Like like some of the classes I do are all it's it's kind of like these feedback classes where they, you do like and it's very peer based learning where you sort of. So the students will present their work and they will give feedback, you know. And I think it could be super interesting to do a class like that with people coming from different parts of those creative educations and see what that does in terms of like, you know, critiquing on each other's work. And yeah, it could be kind of like hugely inspirational to dive into each other's kind of artistic approach. We'd love to see a lot more collaborations like that.
1: Final question for you, Sharon. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that having Molly made you think a little more existentially about things, and you've obviously now been in music for 20 years and are part of a very established band. Have you spent much time thinking about what you'd like your legacy to be, both as a a person and also as a musician?
0: Um, You know, I haven't spent much time thinking about that, but very recently... With the Ravenettes, I mean, Susan and I are talking right now about if we should um, embark on like making a documentary and kind of do some storytelling about the history of the Ravenettes. Because I think, um, because we weren't really embedded in a scene per se, which, you know, so I don't know, I feel like I would kind of like to tell a story. It was kind of a unique story from a Danish band to have that experience. I think it was a very unique experience. And it would be really interesting to like at least try to tell that story somehow. I don't know how, but I'm 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 like we're sort of talking about like you know finding a director and making a documentary, and I'm kind of in the processes, which hence like the Polaroids that I found recently, but like really kind of like diving into like you know just like finding all my old material that we have, all the documentation we have from like it's crazy that it's suddenly like that long ago right it's decades ago so yeah I suppose I'm, I'm much more sort of reflective on like wow that was kind of wild experience Be interesting to like find a way to like tell it I, I would like to think that that we've already sort of inspired the music scene in Denmark to think a little bit outside of Denmark I think we were kind of part of starting that as well this notion that yeah, man, we can go out and conquer the world and have these international experiences. It wasn't really, it didn't really exist that much before us and Mew and then Junior Senior before, you know, it was like suddenly bands were kind of like having international acclaim. And also, you know, because if you look at a band like, or a country like Sweden, they have much more experience within that. So it's like music an industry around music that sort of has much more of, experience with that and a culture with that, you know, and I think in Denmark, we haven't had that. So that could be maybe something that I think we've already been part of, paving the way.
1: Well, when you did return to The Late Show in 2008, at the end of your performance, Letterman did say, I want to move to Copenhagen, (laughs) let's all move to Copenhagen. That's right. So I would argue that you did uh, pave the way in casting a light on the Danish music scene abroad. Yours is a really remarkable story, Sharon, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to share it with us today. Yeah, thanks. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.